Well, this morning, um, this is my first chance to be with you guys as a congregation and as your pastor <clears throat> since uh, Louis, Louis Howard's passing last week. And um, I told Renee last Sunday morning that I really was, uh, I was torn because I wanted to be with Alma, of course, but at the same time, I really wanted to be here. Because I think it's important <clears throat> for a body of people to, that worship together to be able to grieve together and to be able to, to, to experience. And I know you guys have already talked about Louis, but I haven't had a chance to talk with you about Louis and what his life was for me. And so I, I'm going to take personal privilege this morning because it, it helps. It is going to help me in my own uh, grief because I have not. I told Ruth this morning. She asked how things are going. I'm like, eh. I'm not so great, but it's, you know, it is what it is. I'm not able to, I have not been able yet to fully process this because I haven't been able to let go of the, I'm the pastor and just lost my, my good friend, Louie. So I want, I wanted to share with you what I saw this morning as I was opening up my iPad. <clears throat> that's my friend, Louie. And quite honestly, that's pretty much how I saw him the last 30 hours of his life. Sound asleep. He wasn't in any pain that we could tell. He was he was conscious he was not conscious but he was responding you know a little bit responding but he was he was just at peace quiet. This is how I remember my friend Louis, and I will remember forever Beverly's request that uh, he get to play Little Drummer Boy on a Christmas Eve one night one Christmas night and it was holy. <clears throat> really, he does. How cool. When Alma saw this picture the other day, she said, Oh, my boys! And that got put on her new iPod so that she has that every time she turns it on and sees it. But that, to me, that is how I remember both Louie and Mitch. And I know that's a number of years ago, but. <clears throat> um, there was one other picture, but I didn't, I didn't put it up there. There was a picture that I got off of Elsie's website that showed Louie sitting at a piano. And she then focused focused in, in and made a separate picture of just Louis's hands on the keys of the piano. And that spoke volumes to me. And the reason that it did was, again, I sat in that room for 30 hours with Louis's mom and Louis's brother and his caregivers and his nurse and my wife. And the only thing that we could do to connect with him was to hold his hand. And... He, we weren't able to look in his eyes. We weren't able to, you know, to. We, we sang to him. We talked with him. We, we, you know, we encouraged him. We prayed over him. We read scriptures. We sang the Veggie Tales song to him. Um, but the only way we could connect with him was to touch his hands, and um, it was amazing for me. It made me go into a tailspin <laughs> as a human being. I mean, I have spent the last seven days, eight days now, um, just reflecting on my world. Um, one of the things I was able to say to somebody Friday, I think, maybe it was Saturday, was that although it's sad that Louis has gone, Louis's life was not wasted. Louis spent 20 years on this earth teaching doctors and nurses how to treat people with his condition. 
And as a result of the knowledge and the experience that these doctors now have, there are two children who have been born since Louis' birth who both have the same condition as Louis, who are not struggling with brain damage because it was caught in time and they know how to treat because of the experience that they got from Louis' life. So, yes, it was hard to see my, my brother die. It was hard to reflect on the fact that he never lived a quote-unquote full life. For what standard is that? He was who God ordained him to be. And the one thing that we said in that room was, there is now no more suffering. He now is in his full and right mind. He now is in a whole body. And the one thing that was so cool as we were talking with Elsie back and forth was she shared with me that the Lord had said, and whispered to her that the moment that Alma dies, the very first one to come running up and greet her after Jesus will be Louis, and he will pick her up in his arms and swing her around and just hug her and love her. And for me, that is a very joyful thing. But again, I, I, I became reflective this week of who I am. What is my life? Does it make any difference that I have been on this earth? Why am I still on this earth? What can I do differently to continue to be faithful? Or, or have I already done all I'm supposed to do and God's going to take me home in the next 20 minutes? I, I, you know, I, these are things that I have been thinking about. I, I, I can remember as a 20-something-year-old all the dreams and aspirations of what I'm going to do with my life, and none of them came to fruition. Not because I didn't want it or change, it's just the way my life has gone. Am I sad? No. Am I discontent? No, I'm very content with who I am and where I am and what my life has been. But one of the things that I, I came across as I was preparing for this sermon was, and thinking about this processing that I've been doing, I came across this statement, and I can't tell you who the author is. Some people have said it was Oswald Chambers. Others have said it was Mother Teresa. So I'm going to tell you it's anonymous, because I have no idea. I couldn't find a true source. But the quote is this. God has not called us to success, but to faithfulness. And then I put in a Google a search for an image to try and present that statement and this picture is what came up. And I thought, that's pretty cool. I'm not sure that I recognize or understand in my experience or perception that faithfulness goes in one direction and success is in the other direction, but think about it for a while. Does faithfulness and success necessarily go hand in hand? Do you always end up successful even if you are faithful? No. But what is most important? I think so. And that's what, we, that's what we saw in this story that I told the kids this morning. For those of you who follow in the scriptures, it's Matthew chapter 24, verses 14 to 30. Um, Jesus told a parable about the, the, the men who received the talents. But the thing is, is if you, if you were to, <clears throat> to look at that area of Scripture, which we don't have time this morning to just read through it all because it's a lot, but all of chapter 24 and all of chapter 25 of Matthew 
are stories that Jesus is telling to his disciples in answer to this question. And the question is found in Matthew chapter 24, verse 3. Jesus' disciples are with him, and, they, and it says, As Jesus sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? Because they, just before that, they had talked about the temple and how glorious it was. And Jesus had said, I tell you the truth, the time is coming when not even one of these stones will be left standing. And they said, well, tell us when the end is coming. Tell us what it's going to look like. Tell us um, what are the signs that we need to be looking for. And so Jesus began telling stories. He told a story about a man who had a servant and he was leaving for a period of time and he left his servant in charge of the whole household. And the servant started getting kind of careless and he's saying, ah, my master's not going to be back for a long time. I'm just going to take advantage of the fact that I'm in charge here. And he began mistreating his fellow servants and living his life however he wanted. And all of a sudden, in the middle of the night, the master shows up and the servant's caught in his unfaithfulness. And he's severely punished. Then, we're t- then the next story that you read is about ten, in some ver- versions it'll say virgins, in some versions it'll say ten bridesmaids. The, the point is that there, the story is that there's these ten women, five of them are prepared for the coming of the bridegroom and five are not. And when the bridegroom finally arrives, because his, his, I would say his, his arrival was delayed, five of them are ready and they go into the procession and are part of the festivities and part of them are locked out and barred. And again, it's the idea of not being prepared. So Jesus is saying to his disciples when they say, well, tell us about the time that you're going to be coming back and what do we need to look for? And he said, well, first of all, you need to be prepared. And secondly, you need to be watching for me. And third, you need to be prepared. You need to be ready for my coming. Well, what does that look like, Jesus? And so then finally he tells this story, which is the one I just shared with the kids, about the three guys that got the talents. Now, it's a very familiar story. It's a very familiar thing. You've heard it preached on probably forever. And the thing you've probably heard is God has given each of us specific talents and abilities and skills so that we can be used for the kingdom of God. But... If you look at it literally, if you look at this literally, it says that this owner of this estate or business or whatever brings three of his workers in and gives them a sum of money. That's what a talent is. And a talent, we're told, is uh, about 6,000 to 10,000, we're not sure exactly, denarii, denarii, okay? And a denarii is one day's worth of wages, okay? So, let's, let's figure this out. One talent, if we, if we do the figure of 6,000 to 10,000 denarii, and denarii is one day's wage. If you bring it into today's dollars, the minimum wage today, not January 1st, but today, is $7.75 an hour. That's the federal minimum wage. So if a person works eight hours a day at $7.75 times 40 hours a week, okay, blah, 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 blah. But one day's wage is how much? $59.60. $59.60. Multiply that by 6,000. It should come up with $372,000. Oh, 
Okay. We're in, the, we're in the ballpark. That's the lower end. The upper end is $620,000. So this guy comes and says to this one guy, I'm going to give you, we'll do the low end, $375,000, go do something with it. Then he turns to the other guy and gives him five times that. Here's $2 million, just shy. Then he turns to the other guy, the one that gets ten talents, and hands him $4 million and says, go do something with this. Build my business. It's a little bit more um, eye-opening for me to think about it in dollars. I'm, if somebody walks up to me and hands me almost a half a million dollars and says, do whatever you want with this, just build my company. I would be scared to death that I was going to mess something up. Can you understand the desire of the one talent guy to not lose anything? To not mess this guy's $375,000? What if I invest wrong? What if I blow it and I have nothing but a dollar fifty to give back to him when he comes back? He'll kill me. I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to get a box. And I'm going to take this $375,000 I'm going to put it in a box. And I'm going to dig a big hole in my backyard. And I'm going to bury it so I know exactly where it's at. And so when he comes back, I'll be able to give him his money. And there's no chance that I'm going to be in trouble. Can you understand that mentality a little bit better than the, well, he was such a poor servant, he didn't do anything with the money? Now, whether he was a lazy servant who didn't do anything with the money, or whether he was someone who's scared to death and afraid of messing up, so he did all he could to protect the master's goods. Either way, wherever he's at on that spectrum or anywhere in between, what was the response of the owner of the business, the master, when he came back. Look at Matthew chapter 25, verses 26 through 30. What does it say? 25, verses 26 to 30. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sown and gathered where I scattered. Scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has will be will more be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away, and cast the worthless servant into the outer outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's okay. The servant's master called him three things. Wicked, lazy, and worthless. What was Jesus trying to say to all of us through this story? Whether the guy was careless, lazy, wicked, or whether he was flat out just scared. He was rejected by the master. 
for his inaction, for his refusal to use what was given to him. But the one thing that we need to recognize, if you back up, Wyatt, do you still have that available to you, Matthew chapter 20? Yeah. Okay. <coughs> it's um, Matthew 14 and, 25, 14 and 15. Right. Or it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. Did you hear that last phrase? The master gave each of them a certain amount of money based on their ability. If the master didn't know already that this servant had the ability to soundly and carefully handle $375,000 and turn a profit, he wouldn't have given it to him. He knew from past experience or from somehow knowing this guy's capabilities that he could be trusted with that amount of money and could be trusted to increase it. He wouldn't have given it to him if he didn't know that he had that ability. So the reason he got called wicked, lazy, and worthless was not anything other than he refused to do what he was asked. His master said, here's the amount of money, turn a profit for me, and return it to me when I come back. I know you have the ability I'm giving you the tools to make happen what I need you to make happen. Go out and do it. And the person, when the time of accountings took place, had nothing to show. Not because he hadn't carefully preserved that which his master had given him, but because he refused to use it and do anything to try and increase. Do you think if he had come back with $300,000 and lost 75000 that the master would have chastised him in this way? I don't think so. Because I think the master would have understood, well, talk to me about what you did and let's, let's learn from this. Let's see what you did that could have been done differently. I think there would have been a much different response. But for him to simply say, I, because what did he say to him afterwards? He said, you could have at least put it in the bank. At least I would have gotten 1% interest. Come on, this is ridiculous. You're worthless, you're lazy, and you're out of here. You're no longer working for me. Now, go ahead. Huh? You're fired. Now, <clears throat> um, this idea of playing it safe, one of, the reader, one of the scholars that I was reading said, bringing it into our world, into the Christian thing, what is Jesus trying to teach us? This idea of playing it safe can be compared to a religion that is concerned only with not doing anything wrong. I'm keeping myself holy, keeping myself pure for God. I'm living the life that God has called me to live so that when I get up there, I'll be squeaky clean and there will be nothing held against my account. He wiped me clean through the blood of Jesus and I'm staying that way until he calls me home. And I would say to you, that's not enough. 
From Jesus' own words, that's not enough. Being ready to get called home consists in much more than just keeping your slate clean. It actually requires us to be active and responsible in faithful service which produces some result. And I'm quoting Roger Hahn, and I'll give you the, the, the thing later if you need it. He said, Being ready consists not only in keeping your slate clean, but in active, responsible, faithful service which produces results. He didn't say produces success. I look at my world, and as a pastor, one of the things that you get asked constantly, and I hate it, is how are things at your church? And what they're asking for is how many seats are filled on a Sunday morning, and how many dollars come in in the offering, and how many baptisms took place this year. And I can tell them that we have on average about 34 people. And I can tell them that our bills are being paid and that God is blessing financially. And I can tell them that in the last three years, zero people have come to faith that I know of. And I can get all beat up thinking, Lord, I'm wasting my time. Nobody's coming to know you and we're supposed to be expanding the kingdom and what in the world is going on? But the thing that I keep getting reminded as I was reading through this and reading various commentators. It's not how much you're handing back to the master when the accounting comes up. It's how well did you use what I gave you? See, I have heard, and I, I, will, I will call out names without, point, without names because we're recording. But there have been a couple of people who have been here forever in this congregation from the very beginning. And whenever I have talked about the lack of growth, that I, you know, I have to, I have, I'm constantly getting bombarded with it, the lack of growth, the lack of growth, look at the demographics, the, I mean, the statistics, we never really get any higher than 50 or 60, then we go right back down to 20 or 30. And the words that I keep hearing from these two people are, but think about all of those that we have sent out into the kingdom to work. Those that we have been responsible for to disciple to care for, to nurture for the period of time that God has given them to us, and then they go out and they advance. So our ministry here in little old Two Rivers, Alaska, is actually branched out across the world as a result of our faithful care and nurturing of the souls that God has given to us. And sure, we're not seeing hundreds of people come through our doors. And sure, we're not seeing tens of people on a weekly basis getting saved and sanctified. And we're not seeing scores of people filling the pews. But we are, are we, the question that comes before me is, are we being faithful to do what is laid before us using the gifts, the talents, the abilities, the resources that God has given to us? Isn't that all that he's asking of us? The measurement of success is not how many. The measurement of success is, did you do what I asked you to do? Because doesn't it say that he's the Lord of the harvest? We're supposed to call for workers, and we're supposed to be workers in the harvest, but he's the one that saves the souls. The one thing that was so glorious for me 
this week as I was looking at um, at what was going on with Louis and his death. I saw his mom intentionally choose to sleep in his caregiver's home. And she spent hours with this caregiver clearing Louis' things out and going through things. And it wasn't just his room, but there was stuff in the kitchen, there was stuff in the bathroom, there was stuff throughout the house that was Louis. And the whole time they're working together. Well, do you realize that this caregiver doesn't name Christ as her Savior? And Alma spent four days speaking truth into this person's life. And Alma told us, Renee and I, that she was doing that intentionally. She knew this person needed Jesus. And she knew that this person's love for Louis gave her an opportunity to speak truth into this woman's life. And I sat there so proud, going, that's kingdom work going on right there. This woman who just lost her son says, I'm going to turn this into good. I'm going to see the kingdom of God advance through this death. And I'm going to speak life into this household. Using every opportunity to point people to Jesus Christ. What an incredible testimony. What an incredible legacy. You see, Paul says to the Philippians in chapter 2, My beloved, as you have always obeyed, do so now, not only in my absence, but so much, I mean my presence, but so much in my absence. And he says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And I struggled with that for a long time. Work out my salvation. For heaven's sakes, I'm saved by grace through faith. And this is not of myself, it is it is of God and not of any works that I would do so that I can't boast about it. So what is this working out my salvation? And the Lord pointed me almost instantaneously when I asked that question. He brought immediately to my mind Matthew chapter 28 verses 19, 18 through 20 where it says, And Jesus said to them, All authority on, earth, on heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. The only commandment that we have, well, there's two. Love God and others. And make disciples. Those are the two commandments. The rest of it, it's not made up by us, but the rest of it, I think, is not where the measurement's going to be. God's not going to look at you and say, how many movies did you say you weren't going to go to because they didn't have the right content? Or how many times did you make sure that you didn't cuss when you were at work and you were upset? I don't think any of that's going to be measured in the judgment. But I do think, and I don't think he's even going to ask, did you give 10% gross or 10% net in your weekly giving? I really don't think any of that's going to be measured in the judgment. What I think is going to be measured in the judgment is, did you love me with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength? Did you love the people that I put in your life? And did you make disciples? And he didn't say, did you get people saved? 
Did you speak truth? Did you point them to me? Did you follow my leading as I was giving you opportunity to bring life to these people? And if we can say yes to those things, I think we will hear the well done, good and faithful servant enter into the joy of your Lord. Whether we can quantify our life on this earth or not. I want to leave you with a quote. A woman named Rebecca Copeland wrote a blog entitled Faithfulness, Not Success. And this is the quote. God doesn't call us to be successful. He calls us to be faithful. Why? Because victory is the Lord's. We're the soldiers in the unconquerable army. And no matter how bad it looks for us in the short run, the success we hunger for is God's success, not our own. What he's called us to is our role in his victory. Our part is to faithfully fulfill the tasks he gives us. And when we do that, we become part of the greatest success that there ever will be. And that's the kind of promise that can encourage and sustain us for a long, long time.